focusing on why. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22 this morning, but we're going to start with a word of prayer. And Bob, would you please lead us? Father, we just we just thank you for your your, your amazing goodness and giving us Jesus and pouring out your, your mercy and your, your love on us through him and giving us eternal life through him. And I, I pray that you would touch our hearts and in our minds to show us his, his, his preciousness and his, his preeminence in everything. I, I just pray that you would help us to love him and treasure him more, make him, make him the, the, the top thing in, in our lives. We just understand that, that we have nothing without him. And I, I just pray that you would enlighten our, our hearts to, to learn in your word and your precepts this morning. I just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, kind of as a springboard from talking about Judas, uh, we just talked a little bit about the compatibility of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And does anybody remember Ruth's very good uh, description of compatibility? Four words. Gary, no pressure, but was your wife right next to you? <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> okay, I'll help you out. They work well together. So, compatibility means God's sovereignty works well together with human responsibility. They're not at odds. They're not in conflict. We don't have to try to make friends of them. They're already friends. Uh, we just see both of them taught in Scripture, and so we embrace both. Do you remember any examples we saw where sometimes in this very same verse, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility were combined? We looked at like five examples besides Judas. I'll prompt your memory. Who delivered Jesus to death? In Acts 4. Pilate, and who else? The Jewish people, who else? Well, yeah, okay, so Herod and the um, Gentiles, to do whatever your will had predestined to occur. So God did it, ultimately, he's doing it through the choices of people acting freely, wanting to get rid of Jesus. Okay, we also talked about how did Joseph get to Egypt? What are the answers? So his brothers... But ultimately, what does Joseph himself say? How did he get there? God sent me. Okay. Uh, how about who sent those men to Peter in Joppa? So Cornelius sends them and God the Holy Spirit sends them. And then why did Titus want to go to Corinth? So yeah, God put that earnestness in his heart and he wanted to go of his own accord. Same sentence, or two sentences. And then last but not least, in light of Philippians 2, 12 and 13, who's working? God. And? Us. Right. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's us working. 
And four, it is God at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. So God's working in and through us, and we, as a result, work. So it's both. So that's what we mean by compatibility, that God works in us, through us, so that his will is ultimately accomplished, uh, never fails, uh, and we are never violated as far as we didn't want to do something we didn't want to do. So does that make sense? Okay. Um, what do we mean by the perseverance and preservation of the saints? <coughs> What's perseverance? Okay, that goes into it, sure. Okay, good. <coughs> How about a verse like Hebrews three fourteen? We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast our confession firm to the end. So that gets called perseverance, holding our faith to the end and not making shipwreck of faith. Okay? So, um, he who endures to the end will be saved, Matthew 24. You know? If you hold fast this teaching unless you believed in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, too. Um, so there's these contingencies, if you hold fast, you'll endure, or uh, you'll make it, and preservation is God will keep us by his grace and power so that we don't ultimately and finally fall away. And so we saw that in Peter as Jesus prayed for Peter. I prayed for you that your faith not fail. Well, it did temporarily and partially, but not finally and completely. He was restored, just like Jesus said he would be, because he prayed for him. So we saw he will hold me fast, just like the song, and Jesus intercedes for us. That's part of how we stay Christians. That we're still Christians this morning, not because we're so strong and committed and great people, but because Christ is a faithful Savior who will not lose any of his own. Does that make sense? All right. Well, let's. Any comments or questions on either God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and how those are compatible, or perseverance and preservation of the saints? Those are big. Topics. I think somebody used the phrase that was really deep last week. So <laughs> it is deep. We won't deny that. But if you have questions, this would be an opportunity to jump in. Otherwise, we'll keep plowing through Luke 22. Okay. Well, would somebody please read Luke 22, 35 through 38? Luke 22, 35 to 38. And he said to them, When I sent you out without money, uh, without money belt and bag and sandals, did you not lack anything? You did not lack anything, did you? They said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now whoever has money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, 
here are two swords, and he said to them, it is enough. So Jesus is about to be arrested. The next scene is the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does he want his disciples to remember about his time with them, and especially when they, he sent them out? Even when you have nothing, God can still Right. Very good. Yeah. God provided faithfully so that you lacked nothing, even though you yourself didn't take anything along. It was a very obvious that God was providing that's going to change a little in some ways, but the faithfulness of God will not change. How likely is it that Isaiah 53, 12, which Jesus quotes, might be in big caps in your Bibles, will happen? 50-50? And, and what gives you that clue? What's, what word? Well, that and some of your Bibles have must. See the word must? It must happen. There's no other version of reality than Isaiah 53, 12, being numbered with the transgressors, will most certainly happen. Okay? So let's look at a couple other verses that just kind of talk that way. Let's go back to Luke 18, 31. I saw this a few weeks back. Luke 18... 31. And he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Okay, so there again, they will be. There's nothing iffy about it. They will be accomplished. And then Luke 24, would somebody please read verse 44. Luke 24, 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay, so there it is again, must be fulfilled. So when God, you're God and you say something is going to happen, it must happen. So all the prophecies of, about Christ that were written in the Law and the Prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled, and they were, just like Jesus and the Scriptures said they would be. Okay, so any questions or comments on that? Okay, let's go back to Luke 22 then. Would somebody please read 39 to 46? and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So what is the cup that Jesus is praying about? 
Okay. Can we get a little more zeroed in? You're right. The wrath of God. Right? So let's look at a couple verses that talk that way. Psalm 75. Psalm 75. Would somebody read verse 7 and 8? But God is the judge. He put it down one and set it up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture, and he pours out of the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. Okay, so it sounds like the cup is the judgment that will be poured out on the wicked. Okay, and then go to Jeremiah 25, 15. Jeremiah 25.15 Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I sent you drink it. Okay, so here's God's judgment, God's wrath, this this picture of drinking a cup all the way down. Okay, so what is Jesus' request about the cup and why? Remove it. And why why would he pray that way? Yeah, so when we get to the cross, one of the last words of Jesus from the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not just I feel forsaken, but he literally is being forsaken. He had been with the Father from all eternity in the closest imaginable relationship, and now that will be separated and cut off, and the wrath of God on sin will fall all on Jesus, which is, we just can't even fathom that. That this, you know, just the sin of our own falling on us in hell would be crushing. But to take the sins of billions and billions of people is, you know, so it's it's legitimate that he would say, I don't want to have to do that if there's another way. But what's the bottom line and how we praise? God's will. God's will. Your will be done. So man, ever since Adam and Eve, our motto is not your will, but my will be done. I want to do my thing. I want to have my way. I want to be God of my life. I don't care what you say. My will be done. And here's Jesus saying that very opposite, not my will be done, even though I have a strong preference not to have to go to hell for sinners in one level. But ultimately, I want to follow your will. So he's um, it's just incredible <laughs> that um, that's the love he has for the Father, that he would endure that for us. So what can we learn about prayer from that? What can we learn about prayer from Jesus' model here? We can honestly let him know what we feel or how we feel. Okay, good. Yeah, Philippians 4, 6 says... Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. 
Make your requests known to God. So we can ask him anything. Good. Thank you for bringing that up. It's always legit to ask. And then what's the bottom line for us too? We don't always know the best outcome. <laughs> what's that? We don't always know the best outcome. Exactly. So Romans 8.26 says the Spirit himself... Go to Romans 8.26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. What's an example of weakness? For we do not know how to pray as we should. Anybody ever feel that? So here's just a one scenario. Pick your own in your own life. You have a loved one who's sick. Okay. Do you pray for the Lord to heal them? Or the Lord to take them home. So obviously by saying take them home, I already assume this loved one is a believer. So a believing loved one, very sick. Do you pray for a healing? Do you pray they go home? We don't know how to pray, do we? We, we don't know what's best in the big scheme of best. And God does. So we make our requests, like Gary said, we can ask him anything. Lord, if it's, if it's, up, if it's okay with you, please... Restore them to full health. We'd love to have them around longer. But, nevertheless, your will be done. If you, your plan involves them coming home to be with Jesus now and enjoying him forever, so be it. <laughs> I, I want to let go of that and trust you that that's best and that you'll give me the grace to deal with that. So, so that'd be just one scenario. We don't know how to pray because we don't, we're not infinite. We're not omniscient. We don't know what's best. So we have a request. We can make it. We can make it over and over and over. But the bottom line is your will be done, your timing be done, your everything be done. And then, of course, Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So that's just built into the model prayer, the pattern of prayer. We're always looking for God's will to be done. And then 1 John 5.14, if someone wants to read that. 1 John 5.14. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, that he hears us. Okay. So, again, it gets tricky because, I mean, there's some friends in charismatic circles that say, you should never pray, your will be done. That's a lack of faith. You're kind of giving God an out. But, no, Jesus himself prayed that way. He taught us to pray that way. First John says we should pray that way. So it's not a lack of faith. It's just a recognition of who's in charge of the universe. God is, not us. And it's a recognition. He, he's all wise. We're not. So we don't know what's best. So we can humbly make requests and bow before God and say, your will be done. Give me, give me faith. Tom. I was thinking of James 1 and trials, you know, having our faith tested produces endurance of our faith to trust God when we don't know what's best. And I was talking to someone this week about that they were going, walking through a trial and you know, just you know, God's purpose in this love for his children in, in part is that he ordained these trials in our lives to produce
uncertain and that we ultimately acknowledge he is sovereign and he knows what's best for us and just to trust him more. Yeah, and that's worth just highlighting is um, he knows what's best and to trust. We're not just, we're not Muslims. We're not fatalists. Muslim says Allah wills it. What are you going to do? A fatalist says, what will be, will be. Hey, sarah, sarah. A Christian says, I have a father in heaven who loves me perfectly, who is perfectly wise and perfectly sovereign, so I can trust him, even if I can't understand at the moment what's going on. Okay? It's about trusting our father and not just, oh, well, what are you going to do? Okay? We're Christians. We're not fatalists. And sometimes Christians talk that way. It's like, well, God, you know, God's always going to do what he wants to do. And, and like and this, that's a bad thing. That's, that's a good thing, that God's running this universe, not us. Can you imagine how crazy your life would be if you were calling the shots? Do you want that job? I don't. I would mess it up so bad. We all would. Because we're finite. So it's, it's good news that... The bottom line is, your will be done, not bad news. <laughs> My will be done would be a disaster. So, any other thoughts or comments on God's will being done? Here's a rhetorical one. Is that always easy? Of course not. Yeah, sometimes we... It's a, a test of faith and testing of, do I believe God's goodness and love in this. And that's, that can be a, a fight of faith. Um, but Jesus models for us that that's ultimately what's best. So. Any other thoughts before we move on? Okay. Would somebody back in Luke 22 read 47 to 51? Yes, please. Um, yeah, just 51. Okay. Um, so what conclusions were the disciples to come to when Jesus was betrayed, just like he said he would be? You have to think back a couple weeks on this one. Could you repeat the question? Okay. What conclusions should the disciples have come to when Judas betrayed Jesus, just like Jesus had said it would happen that way? Okay, yeah, let's see how familiar that is. And more than just deja vu, let's look at what conclusion they should come to. John 13, 18 and 19.
John 13, verse 18 and 19. Would somebody please read that? I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill a passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Okay, so what? how should the disciples connect the dots in light of that being fulfilled? It's another example of him showing who he was. Just right. Like the healings he performed, the knowledge that he displayed of God's word. It's another example of his deity. Amen. I'm glad you went with deity because if you read the 40s of Isaiah, one of the main tests God offers is, I'm the only one who knows the future. All the other little g-gods do not and cannot know the future. I do, I declare it ahead of time so that you'll know I'm God. That's a phrase you see multiple times in the 40s of Isaiah. So here's Jesus Borrowing that kind of language and saying, I'm telling you something ahead of time so that when it happens, just like in the Isaiah 40s, you'll know I'm God. <laughs> okay? So even that little piece of just, it, oh, it happened to be Judas, one of the 12. Jesus said it would be that way, and it's another identifier of him as nothing or no one less than God himself. That make sense? So it's not just a throwaway paragraph that that story unfolded the way it did. Who didn't wait for an answer for the question about using swords? Peter. So Luke doesn't tell us it's Peter, but the other Gospels let us know it was Peter. And are we totally surprised? No. I mean, just from what we know about Peter, he's a little more impetuous. And so it's like, shoo, right? Do you think he was just aiming to take an ear like a warning shot? No, he was going for his head and didn't get a full shot, so he just, okay, which would hurt. And then, so, um, this also doesn't tell us the name, but who's the person who lost an ear and had it miraculously restored minutes later? Malchus, the high priest's servant. Okay? So, again, these fascinating details, like firsthand eyewitness accounts of this is what happened in the garden, you know? This, these guys came, and here comes a sword, there goes an ear, ear back. <laughs> Just, it's amazing stuff. And then, um, oh, any comments or questions on that paragraph? Okay, let's read 52 and 53, please. said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. So what's Jesus pointing out? Hours of the night and not like 
Okay, so why do you think they did it that way? They were afraid of the public because of right. what they perceived Jesus as, and they didn't want to look bad in the eyes of the public. Right, so they're cowards, would be one part of that, right? Um, another piece is, I'm not a dangerous criminal that you have to come with a big mob with weapons. <laughs> this is overkill. <laughs> uh, I'm not... You know, armed and extremely dangerous, take precaution. It's, I'm just here. I've been here every day teaching the temple. You had an opportunity. Um, I think darkness means more than just it came at night when he says, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. What's he saying? It's not just it's night. What's he saying? Bad intentions, evil intentions. Right? Satan. Conspiring with the devil. Okay, good. So... I think I'd pair. I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah. So here's how I paraphrase it. This hour is for now. You are allowed to do your worst and carry out your evil desires, which have been stirred up by the powers of darkness, namely Satan. But you won't have the last word. You will win this battle. You get this hour, and that's it. But I will win the war. So can you think of a verse in, let's say, Genesis that predicts that all the way back in the garden? Bruised heel of the crushed head. Yeah, well, just, what does it say? Well, that's, I mean, that, you're right. Okay, so right after the fall, God announces to the serpent, the devil, um, you will bruise his heel, referring to this one that's coming, but he will crush your head. So you'll inflict a blow, but he will inflict the final mortal blow. So Satan gets his lick in now. He has this hour of darkness where it looks like everything's going wrong. Jesus is captured, arrested. He's going to be uh, tried and beaten and scourged and crucified and die. It looks like the powers of darkness won. And then Easter morning comes, and it's, no, he didn't. Jesus won. He defeated the enemy for all time. He defeated sin. He defeated hell. And he reigns. So there's this temporary hour of things look really bad, but it's only temporary. Okay, does that make sense? <coughs> Let's do 54 to 62. I know we did it a couple weeks ago, but um, we'll just read it again and see if there's any comments or questions. Somebody read 54 to 62, please. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The 
Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord, word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So any thoughts or questions on this story? I think we asked a, a few weeks ago what, what kind of look do you think Jesus gave Peter and you know you might think oh well what a leaker or you know but I think it was a look of compassion it's like Peter I love you I told you this was going to happen and it's it, it's okay <laughs> you know I'll restore you just like I told you earlier this evening Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith not fail, and when you are restored, you will strengthen the brethren. So I know that part of the story is coming too, not just the first half of you're going to deny me, but the second half, you're going to be restored and strengthen the brethren. So it's, it's all going to be okay in spite of just what happened. That's how I envision it. And again, we don't have a, a picture you know, from that moment, um, but it's just intriguing that Luke adds that phrase because he's the only gospel writer that tells us Peter and Jesus connected eyes. So I just think that's fascinating. Any other thoughts or comments about Peter's denial? I think uh, Peter kind of seen what Jesus was telling him ahead of time that he must go through this and Peter you know, at one point said this, this won't happen Right. and the Lord rebuked him and he says you know it's not what you what you want to happen is going to happen is the Lord's will. But all this time, he knew it was going to lead to his crucifixion and his death. And then Peter was saying, I'll be with you to the end. But then he was convicted because he couldn't even follow him to that point where somebody said, you were with him. And he denied him. He said, I couldn't even be that faithful. And he felt that conviction when the Lord looked at him, that stare, like, where were you? And, you know, He knew. He told him. He said, you're going to deny me three times. It's, it's to solidify, not just once, but three yeah, times. Right. You could go 0 for 3. Yeah, you're going to strike out. Um, and, and again, just that combination of Peter's self-confidence, even though all others fall away, I will never fall away. So if we think, if we put confidence in, I'm committed, I'm strong, I'm loyal, I'm whatever, we're doomed. We're not nearly as strong as we think we are. Um, and it wasn't just like Peter was being tortured and, you know, deny Christ or we'll burn you some more. It's a little servant girl says, didn't you know Jesus? Right? It, it wasn't under duress. 
but like we saw last week in 1 Peter 3.15, do not fear their intimidation. We're intimidated easily, aren't we? <laughs> Sometimes we're pretty, oh, I'm a champion, I'm a bold spokesman for the faith. And other times we just wimp out, <laughs> right? You know, with a relative or somebody else. It's like, I don't want to go there. This is going to get awkward if I talk about Jesus. So I'm just kind of ease out of this one. So we're, we're, nobody wants to throw a rock at Peter, right? Is anybody going, well, even though Peter fall away, I would never fall away, right? <laughs> you don't want to be that guy. Um, so we need Jesus to hold us up and keep us and pray for us and preserve us in faith, or we will all bail on Jesus for minimal reasons. So any other comments or thoughts on Peter? Bob, and then Moses. It makes me think of uh, the Beatitudes when Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, uh, for they shall be comforted. And Peter had already denied, denied Jesus three times, and he didn't go up those times right at him, that, that personal connection was there. He, he felt his betrayal just very, very deeply. And kind of like when they were in the boat and all of a sudden they, got, they caught this huge load of fish and, and it really dawned on Peter, I'm in the boat with God. And he wanted he, he was terrified. He was afraid right. to even be in Depart from you. I'm a sinful man. Right. I, it occurred to me that we can really uh, kind of judge our intimacy with Christ by our, our reaction to our, our sins. Hmm. And it, I, the closer we are to them, the more deeply they're going to cut us and produce that, that reaction hmm. in us, that, that deep mourning. Okay. Moses? Um, yeah, I think uh, what I was thinking of kind of really builds upon that. So I was just thinking the contrast between uh, Peter and Judas. So Judas all this time, he's having this Premeditated transgression against the Lord, and yet, uh, you know, the hard intentions and his reaction to it—he's not grieved at all. He doesn't weep, but you know, he pushes forward. So I just think a contrast between someone who's genuinely the Lord and someone who's not, because you know, when we fall short of uh, the standard of the Lord, you know, do do we weep like Peter? And uh, at least I understand it. Uh, more times than not, you know, someone who's genuine, when they do uh, see those faults and see, you know, ah, you know, I just, I missed the mark, you know, are we grieved when we do fall short? And we, I think this is a good example of Peter, you know, he, he realized what he had just done, and, you know, his heart is grieved for it, and he weeps, yet Judas, you know, even up to the fulfillment of, uh, you know, uh, betraying the Lord, yet I just want to touch on something that Tom said too is that however much time passed it was the same evening that Peter by himself with a sword was going against a mob that was coming with clubs, swords and what else do they have? I mean th those aren't good odds. <laughs> you can be a ninja warrior but that's pretty impressive. Like, so let's give him at least credit for being bold and brave. I, I don't want Jesus to, like, okay, you can have Jesus. It's like, I'll defend you. So there was some loyalty there, but it evaporated pretty quickly, not much later. 
um, in, in much less intimidating circumstances than, oh, here's all these guys coming with weapons. Um, so we're, like Peter, we're all mixed, aren't we? <laughs> we have good moments when, yeah, we're really brave, and sometimes when not so much. All right. Well, let's um, read 63 to 65. Now the guards in charge of Jesus began mocking him. They blindfolded him and hit him with their fists and asked, Who hit you that kind of prophet? And they threw all sorts of other insults at him. Thank you. Um, no, thank you. So Jesus is treated very badly before his trial, uh, both physically being beaten, um, as well as verbally uh, being mocked or blasphemed. Um, and do you remember from First Peter how Jesus responded to this mistreatment? Right, so that's Isaiah 53, 7, like a lamb led to its shears, he was silent. And then First Peter picks up on that as well. Do you remember from a few weeks ago in First Peter 2? Hey, well, how? He did not revile the return. Right. And when, uh, what is it? And when something did not threaten. So both no reviling and no threats, um, even though he could have. So any comments or questions on that little pre-trial snippet. Okay, so let's end on 66 to 71. We'll finish Luke 22 this morning. Uh, would somebody read 66 to 71? And when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to the council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, uh, and if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. And they said, What further need do we have to have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves. So what is the main issue in this trial before the council? They had no accusations to bring against Jesus. Right. They blamed him, um, accused him of blasphemy. Right. That Jesus says, I am the Son of God. Okay, so just as an umbrella, let's just say, the identity of Jesus is what's on trial. Who is this person called Jesus of Nazareth? Okay, so they start out with, what, what do they want Jesus to tell them? Are you blank or not? Are you the, Christ? the Christ. Okay, so Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title. The Christ. What does it mean? Anybody know? The anointed one. The anointed one. So Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed. Christ is the Greek word for anointed. And both of them combined, they're, they're interchangeable, Messiah and Christ are God's anointed, promised, expected king and deliverer. Okay. And um, so how does Jesus respond to that question? 
Not yet. What, what does he say? No matter what I say, you're not going to believe me. Boom. I ask pretty much. You're not gonna answer. Pretty much. So let's go to John 10. Somebody read 24 to 26. So that question's come up before, right? Are you the Christ? I, I told you. <laughs> this is not, I'm not keeping any surprises or secrets here. I have told you, you just don't believe. So it comes up again at the trial, and Jesus is like, this is a waste of breath to try to defend that I am the Christ, because I've told you before anyway, and you don't believe anyway. Okay? So then, what does Jesus mean by son of man? Is he just saying, I'm a human being like you? That's obviously rhetorical. What does it mean? What is the Son of Man when Jesus uses it like that? Well, why don't we see what Daniel 7 says? Somebody read Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Seven, thirteen, and 14. So he's going to be given a kingdom that lasts forever and that all people everywhere in the world serve him. That's a big claim. Jesus says, that's me. I'm the son of man of Daniel 7. And then he adds another <laughs> phrase. What does it mean to be seated at the right hand of God? Right, the place of highest authority and honor. So, you put those claims together, I'm the king of Daniel 7, I'm the one who sits at the highest place of authority in the universe next to God himself, and what do they come away with as a conclusion? That would make you the son of God. Yeah, are you the son of God then? Are you ch- They're connecting the dots very well. Because Jesus just said something audacious if it's not true. So, so the identity of Christ is the issue here. And how does Jesus answer the question? Yes, I am. Now, you might have a footnote or your translation say, might say, you say that I am. So how do we know that's not just a vague, elusive response? Because it sounds like it would be if that's what he said. I mean, if he says, yes, I am, that's very clear. 
But if it says you say that I am, what is that about? Okay, for the sake of time, I'll jump in. So I'll jump. One is, he says the exact same thing to Judas when Judas says, is it me? Remember that at the Last Supper? One of you will betray me. Judas says, is it me? So let me borrow from John Piper. This suggests not only a yes, I know you are the one, but also you know that you are the one. Judas was not sincerely asking a question that he didn't know the answer to. He already knew the truth. In a similar way, Jesus' response is not only a yes, I am the Son of God, but also you already know that is what I am saying. Okay. So I think that's helpful. Um, the other piece, and Luke just tells us um, that's all they needed, excuse me, to um, say he's guilty, we don't need any more. But Matthew's account goes even more and says, we have heard the blasphemy. What's blasphemy? To say that you're the son of God. So they understood. They connected the dots well. They, and if Jesus was being misunderstood, and that would be a perfect time to say, no, I wasn't really claiming that. That's, that would be blasphemy. I'm just a man, or I'm just a prophet, or I'm just a whatever. But no, he lets that stand. You say you're the Son of God, that's blasphemy. Guilty as charged. I am the Son of God. Okay, so we need to wrap it up. And Andrew, would you close in prayer? Father God, I thank you that you give us the freedom to gather and to worship you. I pray that we bring you glory as we lift up your name in praise, as we learn from your word. I pray that we would seek your will in all things, so that's what our prayers would focus on. Thank you for your son, for the Christ, the Son of Man, uh, for the sacrifice he made that we didn't deserve uh, so that we can spend eternity with you and we glorify you. I pray for this on your son's name. Amen. Amen.